Welcome back to Touching Base, the new weekly podcast series from Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News, or GEN. I'm Fei Lin, Senior Editor of GEN Biotechnology, GEN's sister peer-reviewed journal publishing original research and perspectives across the biotech field. This week, I'm here with Juliana Lemure, Jonathan Grinstein, and Alex Filipides to discuss this week's latest stories in biotech. Stay tuned for part two of this episode, where we feature a conversation between Doug Flora, editor-in-chief of Marianne Lieber, Inc.'s newest peer-reviewed journal, AI in Precision Oncology, and Eric Topol, world-renowned cardiologist, best-selling author, and the founder and director of Scripps Research Translational Institute, covering all things in digital technology and healthcare. But first, we're going to chat news with the Gen editorial team, starting with new developments in gene therapy for hearing loss. Juliana, you covered this story. What's the news there? Oh, thanks, Faye. So yeah, what a week for gene therapy and hearing loss. Um, So on Tuesday, a story was released, and I want to be very clear. This was released data by press release, and it is the findings from one patient. So preliminary data, but really positive clinical data. So what this company, so the company's name is Akuos, and um, they just in the last year became um, a wholly owned sub- subsidiary of Lilly. Um, Alex, did you cover that? Can you tell us a little bit about that, but the business before we jump into the science? Sure, sure, uh, Juliana. Uh, at uh, late in 2022, uh, Lilly acquired Akuos for 610 million, up to 610 million dollars, because that hinges uh, on on some milestones. And this was part of Lilly's push into genetic medicines, and uh, a big part of that was establishing uh, an institute for genetic medicine uh, in Boston uh, with uh, operations in New York City as well, uh, but uh, also stretching back to about 2018, there had been various, uh, well, collaborations, like one with the Cerna Pharmaceuticals to develop RNAi therapies, one with Mina Therapeutics uh, toward uh, small activating RNA, and then uh, another partnership uh, up to $1.3 billion with Procure, uh, which was uh, launched in 2021, and that was was uh, RNA base editing uh, technology uh, uh, directed to up to five targets. And Lilly's push into genetic medicines continued into late last year when they had uh, signed up, uh, they'd agreed to buy uh, opt-in rights that Beam Therapeutics uh, base editing developer had held to therapies that were developed by originally by Verve Therapeutics. Uh, So Lilly uh, chimed in $250 million uh, up front front and and they bought Beam's rights to co-develop and co-commercialize four additional Verve-based editing programs focused on three cardiovascular uh, targets. One of them undisclosed, the other two are PCSK9 and ANG-PTL3, the uh, other target. And uh, with moves like this, uh, Lilly has sought to build a broad palette of activity in genetic medicines, including gene therapies, which is how and why they got into uh, Akuos, given its niche in uh, hearing loss uh, therapies. So I guess that the partnership with Akuos really paid off, at least as far as the data that released yesterday indicates, because what they said is that the first participant to receive this gene therapy, now it's an AAV-based gene therapy. So the first patient is an 11-year-old with profound hearing loss from birth. 
And he experienced restored hearing within just 30 days of the AAV administration. Hearing was restored across all testing frequencies and within even normal range at some frequencies at day 30. So, you know, what promising results? I, and again, you know, one patient, data by press release, but still. So I was lucky enough, I actually spoke with the co-founder of Akuos in May of 2022. This was before they even had INDs. And um, his name is Manny Simons, um, did his PhD with Bob Langer. And he's a, a you know, was a musician um, really in, in college, but also had this really profound interest in neuroscience. And so really married these two interests together to start Akuos with the, the um, gene therapy for hearing loss. And what he told me is that the inner ear is not an easy place to access. So it, it's closer to the brain than the middle ear. Um, the sensory cells are encased in this like bony structure. So, you know, he, the companies really worked on in part the surgical mechanism to even access this part of the ear. And so that's one, that was like one challenge to get over. The other challenge was finding the right AAV, right? And that's the same story for, you know, across any gene therapy. Um, but he said that AAVs are really ideally suited to the inner ear. They can be um, delivered directly with their procedure that they use. Um, immunity is reduced in the inner ear. When they were doing that preclinical testing, they didn't see any real immune response, um, like in the non-human primates. So it seemed like, you know, kind of um, all systems go. And so this is, um, and then also I should mention that they um, collaborated with Luke Vandenberg, also in Boston um, at the Mass Ioneer. And what the Vandenberg lab does is search, you know, screen through many, many AAVs to find the right um, vector. And so they found this ONC80, which is the one that's used in the drug that was given, um, that was, you know, talked about this week. So um, I, I actually looked up that article that I wrote in 2022 um, and something that I wrote then, it said, even with the complications of the immune system diminished, as is the case for Akuos's work in the inner ear, the questions of efficacy loom large. But, you know, with the data from yesterday, or at least the news from yesterday, um, I guess maybe efficacy that that question is being handled. And actually, what I want to say is that that was just the first story like this to come across our desk this week. The second story, and I only say second because it was the second story to to come across our desk, but it actually, I think it was um, maybe the first time that the first, the trial may have even started earlier, but this is a story that comes out of China, um, began in December, 2022. And this was the first um, administration of a gene therapy to a child with this particular mutation. I should mention that these mutations in both this trial and the Okoos trial are in a gene called, called autoferlin. Um, so in this trial, and this is published in the Lancet as of Wednesday afternoon, five of six children treated demonstrated hearing recovery and improvements in speech and recognition. Um, the last thing I want to say about this, although it's so exciting, you know, we could talk about this all day, is that um, the other thing that this, the um, what they pointed out in the, the story in the Lancet is that this is a good example, you know, AAVs have a very small, they can only carry so much DNA. And so, you know, if you have, if you're de delivering like a large genetic payload, AAVs can be really limiting. 
But so then what they do is they they package it into two different ones. And that's what they did in this story too. So it showed really notable efficacy for using a dual AAV vector system um, in order to get results. And the last thing I want to say is that both groups will be presenting their data at the Association for Research and Otolaryngology annual meeting, which happens the first week of February. Great. And uh, that AKOTOF uh, gene therapy, just to show you, a month before Lily announced they were buying a Kuos, uh, uh, a Kuos 1 uh, IND clearance for the phase 1 2 trial, whose first uh, little uh, data we're now hearing from shows you how closely these developments uh, are coming. And it was the lead preclinical gene therapy of uh, Okuos at the time of the acquisition. That, that is their lead. They have a second one, actually. That's um, right. But And also how quickly everything has moved, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like we're talking in the span of roughly a year, maybe. Mm -hmm. I mean, so that's kind of amazing. And then yeah. in the second story, too, that first patient was dosed December 2022. So, you know, these are this is rapidly developing. I read that the patient and there's like, there's no better data than this, but the, the 11 year old boy, he said something like they asked him what his favorite sound was. And he says, I like all the sounds like, you know, like everything is so amazing to hear. And it's just like hearing that kind of response from a patient is just, you know, I mean, just jaw dropping. It's it's why we're all in this business. It's certainly a really exciting story, especially when physicians and scientists have been working to address hearing loss via gene therapy for over 20 years now. And so very significant for, for the field to hear this news this week. Jonathan, I'm going to shift to you. We're going to go from gene therapy to cell therapy. You covered Kyverna Therapeutics this week, and we're going to talk about their work in CAR-Ts and autoimmunity. How did Kyverna catch your attention? Yeah, thanks, Faye. So in October, November, I was at a conference, the Precision Medicine Conference in Dana Point, uh, just up the road from San Diego. And there was a panel, I can't remember exactly what I what it was on, but it was I was stunned because the CEO hijacked this panel basically and turned to the screen. And he's like, you will all watch this video now. And I was just like, wow, it's <laughs> a pretty gutsy move here to do on a panel. And and I mean, he did not disappoint. Um, this was a Peter Mag or Mag from Kyverna, and he was showing a patient with myasthenia gravis who was had a full-on crisis, was in the ICU, in a bed, intubated, and then you know this is a disease that there's not really much that people can do about it. And the recovery time is real slow and whatnot. And he showed videos of three weeks after their treatment with, or her treatment with CAR-T, their CAR-T therapy, um, that she was walking with assistance three weeks later, two weeks after that, she was riding a bike. And two weeks after that, she was going on hikes with her husband, you know, and, and that's just, it was unheard of. I, I actually know someone who had a myasthenia gravis crisis and they were in the hospital for months and the recovery was months and it was just like so I was I was completely blown away this is another one of those like you see the patient go their lives change you know from this really help, hopeless helpless situation perhaps and um I was blown away by it so when the Kyberna got in touch with me to tell me about some news that they had coming out I, I jumped right on it and um their news this week has to do with uh the publishing of their platform called Ingenuity and uh, this is a proprietary autologous CAR T cell therapy manufacturing 
process that uses a blood draw rather than apheresis to collect T-cells from patients. And apheresis is expensive, takes a lot of time, supposed to be painful, um, where now patients can who are going to be treated with CAR-Ts can do what essentially is the same as a routine blood draw um, to get the sample needed for the therapy. Now what Kyverna is offering is a method that uses just a blood draw, so a couple hundred mils to get the source sample for CAR-T therapy, which is just pretty amazing. It's supposed to be, you know, essentially painless and very quick. Um, so major improvement there for facilitating making uh, CAR-T cell therapy, um, something that can be used, you know, at a massive scale. Because when we're talking about autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis and lupus and all the other ones that fall under that umbrella, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of patients that could benefit from this therapy. Jonathan, this week, you also covered GSK and allergens collaboration to develop DNA-based medicines and vaccines. Can you tell us more about that story? Yeah, so always been kind of curious and interested in the whole DNA writing space. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, as someone who is a researcher and would order oligos and stuff like that, I've always been fascinated at how people have been writing, rewriting or writing genes and whatnot to create synthetic organisms or, you know, it's really essential for driving synthetic biology processes, whether it's in human health or in industrial processes and whatnot. And um, I, so Elegen is this company that has worked towards making the entire long double-stranded DNA production process cell-free. Um, so going from the initial synthesis stages of making oligos to assembling them and cloning them cell-free and then amplifying the product cell-free, um, which uh, CEO Matt Hill said in an interview was important when we're talking about moving not just from doing research with these kinds of long DNA sequences, but what, for making drugs, which is what GSK is in the business of. So um, with this collaboration, GSK is going to tap into Elegen's uh, technology, the cell-free DNA synthesis technology, um, and to make uh, mRNA vaccines as well as uh, other genetic or DNA-based medicines. Um, and going circling back there to the mRNA uh, vaccine part, one thing that Matt Hill was uh, the CEO and founder of Elgin was touting was that they've uh, developed in, into their platform um, bringing in all the different pieces that are necessary for protecting and folding and uh, protecting our mRNAs for translation and setting them up for, you know, just for success to making the actual proteins that they're being sent in for uh, to generate. So, um, you know, it's, we'll have to keep an eye out there to see if GSK can kind of use this collaboration to jump into the race of mRNA-based medicines, you know, that just took off with COVID, the COVID mRNA vaccines. And now, you know, people are also moving forward with it in terms of oncology and cancer. I guess what I'm wondering, Jonathan, is what is it specifically about? I mean, because a lot of these companies make, you know, DNA or RNA already. So what is it specifically about Elegen's technology or product that you think that GSK was looking for? 
it's a combination from my understanding of the cost and the speed that's you know incrementally better and potentially the dna error rate which you know when thinking about just kind of incremental advantages you know it doesn't seem like too much maybe just like at the at the onset but when i stop and think about it and talked about it with you know with matt for instance is when you're trying to make drugs for a lot of people and something like the mrna vaccines for covid they were you know there were billions of doses that were dealt out you know getting from your your initial product uh, to the drug at a better cost better speed and, and whatnot just those those incremental benefits do really matter um you know i i couldn't really deduce that there was some hugely revolutionary new technology that was being used. I mean, they claim to not use phosphoramidite technology. They claim to not use enzyme-based synthesis and that they have some other proprietary method, um, which I tried to look through patents to find out exactly what they're doing. But um, it doesn't sound to me like they've, you know, broken through to completely new terrain that no one else is really working on. Alex, we're going to shift to you in business. What's the news with NVIDIA and Recursion? Yeah, thanks, Faye. Two major players in AI, artificial intelligence-based drug discovery, have made news uh, in recent days. Uh, Recursion uh, is revealing slowly but surely how it'll translate the partnership it announced with uh, NVIDIA last summer into projects that uh, advance uh, AI drug development. Now, NVIDIA started the partnership last uh, July when they invested $50 million into Recursion, which is based in Salt Lake City. So Recursion and NVIDIA had this glitzy party this uh, Wednesday night of J.P. Morgan uh, in downtown San Francisco at the Mint. And Recursion used the occasion to demonstrate its new software, which is designed to perform drug discovery tasks like finding targets, for example, using natural language interface called LOW, which is short for Large Language Model Orchestrated Workflow Engine, L-O-W-E. And uh, Recursion said they'll be the first uh, hosting partner of NVIDIA's to release a potential series of AI foundation models for external use to be hosted on NVIDIA's uh, cloud-based platform BioNemo. And the series is called Phenom. It's a play on the words phenomenal and phenomics. Uh, phenomics being the systematic study of a cell's phenotype in response to many different chemical or genetic uh, perturbations. And uh, well, they emphasize and, and showed the demonstration a little more quietly, uh, a few months back, Recursion tucked into a regulatory filing, uh, their third quarter report, that they're working to expand their BioHive 1 supercomputer over four times by working with NVIDIA. Recursion will add more than 500 of NVIDIA's H100 graphics processing units, or GPUs, to the more than 300 NVIDIA A100 GPUs that are already in place, and this expansion is set to be finished uh, in the first half of, of this year. Now, NVIDIA made this uh, party a party by bringing out its founder and CEO, Jensen Huang. He wowed the crowd by predicting that this year, every industry, his words, will become a technology industry. He also had a message uh, for a lot of the biopharma executives that were in that audience, and that was that uh, NVIDIA wants to work with them as well on AI uh, drug discovery. 
and the recursion projects, as well as a collaboration with Amgen that I'll get into in a bit, helped raise NVIDIA's stock price up 27% since the year started. Uh, just today, a couple of percent higher to 613 and change, uh, up from 481 and 68 cents in the beginning of, of this year. Now, Amgen, which is one of the first drug companies to use BioNemo, has agreed to build AI models trained to analyze one of the world's largest human data sets on an NVIDIA DGX SuperPod uh, data center to be installed at the headquarters in Reykjavik, Iceland of Amgen's Deco Genetics subsidiary. The system will be named Freya for the Norse goddess associated with the ability to predict the future. Thanks, Juliana, Jonathan, and Alex for sharing your news coverage this week. We look forward to bringing you an exciting interview between Doug Flora, editor-in-chief of the new journal launching in February, AI and Precision Medicine, and world-renowned cardiologist Eric Topol after this quick break. This episode of Touching Base is brought to you by Gen Biotechnology, the marquee peer-reviewed journal from the publishers of Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. Launched two years ago, Gen Biotechnology publishes exceptional research, reviews, opinion and analysis across the biotech spectrum, from genomics and symbio to AI and drug development. The journal features an outstanding editorial team, which is led by Chief Editor Hannah Al-Samad, Senior VP at Altos Labs in California. Gen Biotechnology has already published exciting original research on gene editing to boost vitamin D tomatoes, CRISPR-based pest control, base editing delivery in a single AAV vector, and cost-effective 3D printing. Plus, Gem Biotechnology has featured exclusive interviews with biotech CEOs, insights from Wall Street financial analysts, and news features from Gem reporters covering the state of aging research, AI and protein design, and advances in organon chips. Gem Biotechnology is the new choice for novel and groundbreaking advances in the biotech field. Learn more at www. Welcome back to Touching Base, the new podcast series from Jen. In this segment, we feature a conversation between Doug Flora, editor-in-chief of Marianne Liebert Inc.'s newest journal, AI in Precision Oncology, and Eric Topol, world-renowned cardiologist, best-selling author, and the founder and director of Scripps Research Translational Institute. In this interview, Eric and Doug have a riveting discussion covering the advantages, bottlenecks, and outlook of digital technologies in healthcare. In December 2023, this discussion was featured as the opening keynote session of the journal's inaugural virtual summit, The State of AI in Precision Oncology, and will also be published in the journal's debut issue this February. Obviously, we're, we're talking about precision oncology. I know you were a world-renowned cardiologist but you've also been the tip of the spear for a long time as an advocate for using digital technologies and AI in healthcare. Um, how did you get there? You know, I, I know your career path, most of us do, is you moved up in cardiology and, and, um, and then moved it uh, over to Scripps and, um, and established yourself as a broader thinker beyond uh, the cardiosphere. Uh, how did you get into AI and digital health? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I actually started back uh, long ago in college. I was at UVA and uh, I was really into genetics. Uh, I even wrote uh, a thesis about prospects for gene therapy in man, and that was about 40-some years ahead of maybe 50 years ahead of schedule. But at any rate, I got back to genomics uh, when when that became possible in the 90s. I uh, started, of course, 
accruing huge data sets. Uh, and then when digital started to also uh, become a possibility with sensors and, and smartphones connected uh, to the internet uh, in the late 90s, there was another dimension of big data. And, and then all of a sudden, there's all this data. Uh, we're all dressed up with nowhere to go without the proper analytics. And that added the AI as the third leg of the stool. So basically, it's been, Doug, a progression of needing ways to analyze um, immense data sets over time and realizing, by the way, that uh, as, you, as you and your group know that cancer is a genomics disease. Uh, however, um, it's not just a genomics disease. It's, it, we, we tend to oversimplify things. And that's why having as many layers of data, whether it's through digital or environmental or immunologic or you know, all these other important layers, it, it, as we've learned over time, that orthogonal data perspective is vital. Maybe we go back to November last year with the release of the, the first models of generative AI and uh, the acceleration of uptake, uh, maybe the democratization. Can you talk about when you started to see that stuff happening? You certainly alluded to in Deep Medicine, which I read back in 2019. When did you see that this stuff was hurtling towards us uh, at this pace? Right. Well, when I was writing Deep Medicine, it was a couple of years of research and also talking to all the AI gurus around the world. And they told me um, that there was no model to do what GPT-4, ChatGPT, uh, now Gemini and GPT-5 imminently. There was no model yet, but it was going to ultimately be available. So uh, when that book um, was coming out, as you said, in 2019, it really took almost five years uh, to see the light with ChatGPT, because the precursors to ChatGPT, even though this was incubating since 2017, with this classic paper, attention is all you need, a preprint, uh, which never got published in a regular paper. Um, but that, it was incubating, you know, with, with GPT-2. And, you know, it took years to get to this point of having massive graphic processing units, uh, well over 25,000 for um, the uh, GPT-4. And so, you know, it was kind of a natural progression and it was all being done in the background because it, it wasn't until November 30th of 2022 when ChatGPT went out and 100 million people got onto it, said, whoa, th this is now uh, really something. But as you know very well, uh, this is still just the beginning of where we're headed. And it doesn't stop here. And the ability now to take multimodal data, whether it's images, and you know, that could be uh, past slides and images. It could be, of course, uh, audio from our visits with patients or bedside rounds. Uh, and it could also, of course, be anything in text. So we don't even have medically supervised training, uh, specialized training, fine tuning yet. We're basically dealing with base models and they're doing extremely well for medical questions and even medical diagnoses right now. You wrote a really nice piece in science back in September about this transition to multimodal. And I remember specifically thinking that you nailed it when you said um, computers or machines don't have eyes, but, but they do, right? And that's where mm -hmm. multimodal brings in. So maybe talk about what a revolution that's gonna be as we start to see these new models like Gemini this week 
and, and BARD expanding and the new GPT-4 models that are more multimodal than the originals. Yeah, so the, the first phase of this kind of AI era uh, that's affecting our lives was deep learning, deep neural networks, um, inputs that were largely annotated, ground truth, experts saying this it's this or it's that. As you know very well, you can't do that at scale because there's not enough experts to do this labeling. They don't want to do this stuff. I got better things to do. And it costs a fortune to do hundreds of thousands, if not millions of images. So one thing we had to do is get past supervised learning uh, to get to self-supervised, unsupervised, to let the data uh, basically move ahead in its uh, through through the um, artificial neurons, the, the, the actual neural network without that training. Uh, it's training, but not through experts and ground truths now. So now the next thing was, how do we go from one task, like an image, to multiple tasks? And that really was the basis of the transformer model that I mentioned, you know, beginning in 2017, because instead of going back and forth with each word in a sentence or a paragraph with what was called a recurrent neural network, a, a type of deep neural network, it could do the whole thing. It, it had the context. And soon enough, it wasn't just words. It was videos and images and, and of course, uh, speech. So that is what was the big change to go from what you know, old school deep neural networks that were, you know, in the mid um, uh, a decade, uh, you know, that was really um, 2015 was starting to hold, get into its own. And certainly by 2020, it, it had really been validated but to go to the next big jump, which are these multimodal self-supervisor or unsupervised and that's what's taken us, of course, with enormous computing requirements uh, to the place where we are right now. Because they're they're uh, stuck between Siri and Skynet right now. <laughs> right. Well, as, as you're noting, I think you're alluding to, there hasn't been much implementation of AI uh, in healthcare to date. Uh, there's over 650 algorithms. Uh, many, most of those are deep learning uh, unimodal one task algorithms, not any transformer models uh, or multimodal that have been cleared or approved by FDA, but there's no transparency. You know, that we don't have as, as a medical community, as administrators or whoever's making decisions, you know, we can't even review the data because most of these haven't ever been published. And if they are published, they're proprietary and non transparent. So we have a little problem. But the other issue, of course, is uh, things that may not need FDA clearance, which is a good thing. So if I was an administrator right now, what I want to do is undo what the damage was done with electronic health records, where electronic health records became what basically, if it didn't impede or ruin the patient-doctor relationship, it and hurt doctors' lives and nurses' lives, it sure uh, didn't do any good. And as you know, most uh, clinicians hate data clerk work because it takes them away what they really want to do, which is caring for patients. And it eats up hours when they're not seeing patients to do all this you know, data uh, clerk work. So 
we can move now without any FDA approval um, to a, a synthetic note. And it's not just the note from the conversation uh, with a patient in clinic, adjusted for articulating the physical exam, because otherwise that, that would not happen during the visit. But just with that little addition, everything else is put into notes that are far better than what you see in uh, Epic, Cerner, and all the other ones. And once you have that note digitized, it does all the other things like pre-authorization and billing, follow-up appointments, prescriptions. Uh, it even does nudges for to patients as did you know check your blood pressure? What were the results? Or did you go for the test that was ordered? And you know this or all this sort of thing. So the uh, the other thing, Doug, it coaches physicians to be more sensitive and empathetic, reading through the notes. Say, why did you interrupt the patient after you know X second, which is unfortunately typical. Uh, and the patients really like this because they have the audio recording and to clear up any confusion or things they forgot. They can go from the note that they get to, if need be, link right to the audio file. So this is the future, and it's now, and it's going to take over in the next couple of years. So administrators who want to make their clinician uh, group happy and patients being able to see, literally, face-to-face -face their clinicians, they might want to think about trying these things out if they haven't already or wide-scale adoption as some health systems are already doing. Um, you were instrumental in founding the, the Learner College of Medicine, and you've devoted a great deal of your, your entire life's work is to educating most people, uh, reaching the most people you can. That's what I've most admired is I want to do the same thing with our forums that we have here. How are we going to bridge that gap for students? You know, they're obviously tech savvy. Uh, but you no longer need to memorize the 15 causes of pancreatitis or Ranson's criteria for the severity of that admission. They have it in their fingertips. They can find it with uh, with a quick look uh, with a, the new Ray-Ban glasses. Uh, how are we going to train them to be critical thinkers and to ask the right questions, even if it's just designing prompts? Yeah, now that's a, a, a fantastic question because that makes us rethink not only how do we educate, but how do we select the future physicians. Um, congratulations on your daughter. That's fantastic. But, you know, we used to pick them still today by they have to be kind of brainiacs where really high MCAT scores and GPAs and they won't even get past the threshold without that. What about their people, um, you know, um, their ability to communicate and empathize and, um, you know, connect with other people? And I'm hoping that that will change and will emphasize that because a lot of the, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when you didn't have, you had an abacus but not a calculator, <laughs> you know, it's, you're going to have so much knowledge at your fingertips that, that, that memorizing everything is, is not the deal. It's about, as you said, the reasoning and um, that building that um, ability to be trust presence with your patients and, and know they really you you have their back that you really care for them so i think it's going to be uh, an education that will have to include what is ai what how does it work what are the liabilities the fact that it can uh lose performance over time that it requires surveillance that it has issues about bias and inequities and you know lots of issues about ai that medical students have to understand 
because they're going to be using it in their daily lives. And so, you know, this is something that once we get the right people in medical school, and we got to train the old docs like us too, because most of us uh, have not gotten up to speed. And, you know, we can go to GPT-4, chat GPT and play around, but we don't realize that's going to be the, that's just going to be medicine in the future. And so we have to, everyone in medicine needs to understand the nuances. They don't have to know how to code. In fact, you can get GPT to code for you. Yeah, what you just do need to know is how, how does it how does it get to what you know the as you said the prompts? How do you do good prompts? How do you get the output that you really are looking for? Those are the things that we have to learn uh, about, as well as when to trust it, when to you know, like for me. If I have any questions, I've seen a GPT-4 response. I'll just go right away and do it over again. Um, you know, it's like double data entry. Um, we got to learn how to, to, when we use it, that we can trust it. And, of course, there a lot of things are made up now. Um, and so you have to be able to be savvy enough and re- re- require that authentication that we all want. We don't want to use something that's faulty, especially when it's involving patient care. As we move into the future of medicine, um, where do you see this going in the next two years? Well, the next couple of years, I'm hoping that we'll start to see, you know, this cancer screening get upended. That would be nice. We won't have it finalized, but at least some of the trials are ongoing now to challenge the old way of doing cancer screening. Um, You know, I think that there's a lot of moving parts here. Uh, We will get a diagnosis improved whether it's because of the accuracy of in scan interpretation in the next couple of years, or whether it's because each doctor uh, through their health system practice has access to a GPT support that gives them the differential diagnosis of difficult diagnoses. So they're at least thinking of things that they couldn't. Uh, we have to get rid of the rush job, of course, because if you only have you know seven minutes for a routine visit, Um, that's not enough to hear about patients' concerns and to think. And so one of the things we have to work on in these next few years is not let the AI make things worse, not let more patients get squeezed into any daily schedule. Uh, So that's that's a challenge because we got a lot of non-physician overlords out there that are making the call as to, oh, well, you're more efficient now. Uh, let's, Let's get your schedule filled up even more. So these are things we have to confront in the next couple of years that are really important, Uh, you know, because eventually this is a very big, if not the most extraordinary transformation of medicine that we'll see in our lifetime. Um, But we have to plan ahead, like you're saying, the next couple of few years, what's going to be, you know, big factors. There will be tools to summarize every aspect of a patient's data before you even start to look at their uh, chart before you go see the patient. There will be, and they'll be ready in the next couple of years. There will be not just add, adding to the medical diagnosis uh, accuracy. Um, so the medical literature, it's very hard for us to keep up. Two years from now, don't worry about that. It'll keep up for you. If you get, it'll give you the daily skinny if you want on everything in your field. Because the corpus of medical literature for you is something that is right in the sweet spot of generative AI. 
you know, we found ourselves a couple of weeks ago back in Bletchley Park mm-hmm. uh, addressing the issues. And I think it's it's appropriate that they went there. This is the the site for those of you that aren't uh, aren't AI nerds like me. This is where Alan Turing and the imitation game uh, decoded the Enigma and um, and helped in World War II. And you've, you guys have seen that Benedict Cumberbatch movie probably. Um, a bunch of world leaders, including Kamala Harris, Elon Musk, a bunch of the senior, senior uh, leaders from 27 different countries convened in Bletchley Park uh, at the site of that original uh, you know, origin of computation uh, to derive a rule set. And, and that's the first time we've really seen formative guidelines and everybody wants them. We all recognize we need some sort of guidelines to keep us on the Siri side and not on the Skynet side, to use another movie analogy. Who owns this, Eric? How do we do this? It can't be self-regulated because there will always be bad actors. Uh, it's moving so fast that I don't know if government can keep up. Uh, is there a sweet spot in between? I hope so. I mean, I think we're still, this is happening so fast. The uh, uh, adaptation to get to that proper middle ground where you're not stifling innovation, but you're not uh, fulfilling the doomsday prophecies, which, you know, we we don't want to see anything like that. You know, the big debate is this artificial general intelligence and whether we're going to approach that, whether we're already there, depending on how you define it, and uh, what can happen when when we get to that level. Uh, One of the problems we have as a species is we don't want to acknowledge that machines can be smarter than us. And uh, when that happens, uh, it's very threatening. Uh, but we also, uh, we're caught, it's happened so fast. We haven't really, you know, come to terms about how, when you have powerful tools like genome editing, we saw what happened there. You know, when in China, we had a guy that was doing germline editing and he wound up in prison for that. Um, we, we, we have to think about what could go wrong and try to anticipate and prevent, you know, the, these very worrisome untoward uses um, that that you know if you can if you can get GPT to become uh, a educator for bioterrorists uh, that's not a good thing so um, you know this is not going to be easy uh, even the regulatory agencies you know like I mentioned the FDA they haven't approved even reviewed one multimodal AI algorithm so we're in the early days of all this uh, we have to deal with embedded biases in our culture, a lack of diverse populations in the AI that, you know, when you put something out like a pulse oximeter with AI, but you haven't tested it in people of color, we got a problem here, you know? And so there's all sorts of holes that have to be worked on. That's why I say ultimately this will get on the right track, but we're, we're not there yet. Yeah. I think we've seen some scary stuff coming out of facial recognition studies for you, as you look forward, what are you most excited about? Well, to me, I think the, the ultimate thing is that we restore that patient-doctor bond, you know, patient-clinician bond that we've lost. You know, um, in finishing med school in the late 70s, I remember what it was like uh, in my early years practicing medicine in the 80s compared to what it is now. And, and uh, it's, it's really eroded. And I know we can get that back. I know we have the the makings of the gift of time so that medicine becomes much more reflective rather than reflexive and that we, you know, are able to execute our charge, which is caring, 
caring for patients and they know that they're being looked after. So that's what I'm most excited about. It won't happen tomorrow, but we're we're seeing the seeds of that. You know, we know that efficiency, productivity can be improved and we know support is there, that there's a rescue on the way. And so that is the end goal to me. I, I, I can see through the accuracy part being enhanced, but that's not enough. We have to have the overarching goal of this humanity, humaneness in medicine, because that's what it's all about. Well said. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Touching Base. We'll be back next week with more news coverage of the biotech field. Until then, I'm Faye Lin. We'll see you next time.